0: Welcome to Theatrically Speaking, the very first playwriting podcast. My name is Jonah Knight. Season 1 is republishing the long-lost first episodes of the show from back in 2007, and Season 2 begins the new episodes. Now a few things have changed since 2007, like the website. For more information about Theatrically Speaking or my other podcasts, please visit actualstorypodcasting.com. Next, back in 2007, you could number your episodes however you like, and I did this very creative numbering system that included episodes 4.1, 4.15, 4.2, and no actual episode 4. The numbering that the episodes have in your feed is the order that you should listen to them. So, welcome in to the Theatrically Speaking Wayback Machine. It's time to talk some plays. I hate movies I don't watch This is Jonah Knight. Welcome back to Theatrically Speaking. This is episode 1.2, a playwriting podcast. This is 1.2 because we are in the second of a three-episode arc dealing with the subject of theatricality. For additional information about uh, this show, whether it is uh, show notes or feedback or that kind of thing, all of that can be found at the website, www.JonahOfTheSea.com. It is, uh, according to my watch, about ten after three. I heard somebody say that it was supposed to rain at three today. It's not raining yet, but if it does, perhaps that will sound nice. We will see. Or we won't see. So, uh, today's show is divided up into two sections. Basically, the first part is kind of a recap kind of thing of the last episode, where we talked about what exactly theatricality was. And the second part of today, we're going to move on to specific techniques that you can use, things that you should be thinking about as you are doing your playwriting, as you're making your your sketches for future plays, or as you're going back to do some rewriting. Things that will make your play more theatrical, perhaps richer, perhaps more finely textured, and perhaps more producible, memorable, something that someone is going to get passionate about. All right? Okay. Okay. So, last episode, we tried to get up a definition of theatricality, and every time that this has come up in my own life with teachers or whatnot, it, uh, it ended up about the same way that I think our defining uh, in the last episode did. In uh, That means that it was a little vague, a little bit maybe confusing, or maybe you kind of got something in the back of your head that might sprout into something kind of fun later. Um, but... Basically, according to the dictionary, theatricality is the essence of theater. The essence of theater. It is that which is unique to theater. That which does not exist in cinema or television or any other uh, medium that you may find yourself thinking about writing in. Each of those mediums have their own special magic something, but each one is different. So, so... A couple of things. I'm going to start this by talking about two additional ways, uh, not ways, but two additional mediums that we did not hit last episode, and I hung on to them for this one because they are perhaps a bit more relevant to writing for the theater. The first one, and go with me on these, I mean, professional wrestling was last episode, so we're not hitting that one, but we are going to start with comic books, and the reason why... Comic books are kind of similar in your thought process to writing a play is because comic books, comic books are a series of images. They are pictures. They're not moving pictures like uh, film or television, but these are static pictures. When When you are producing or uh, a play is being directed, you go to watch a play, oftentimes, what you take away from that, from a theatrical performance is not the sense of moving pictures, but a sense of static pictures. Theater can do tableaus. Uh, Theater can do great imagery with, uh, with color and making sure that the actors are standing in such a way so that the shadows and their forms fall in such a manner that drives you to great passion or something like that. And comic books are the same thing. Because comic books are static pictures... They do not show you action. They show you the moments before and the moments after the action. So you think about Superman punching out the robot, right? And there's the picture. There it is. And Superman's kind of flying. And he's got his fist going up and the robot's head's flying off. And that's it. And you see that one picture and that's all you need when you're reading that comic book. As you see that picture, you know what came right before that you have a pretty good idea of what's coming right after that. All of the motions, all of the the small minutiae of events that lead up to that static image. And theater is often the same way, that, that there are big events and there are big static pictures. And much like an MP3 audio file, when you take out the bits and pieces, you still get a sense of the entire piece. And for most people, that's what you need. So it's perhaps worth filing away in the back of your mind that there should be or there is the potential in your play, in every play, to have these sets of static images. And certainly that doesn't mean that there is no movement in the play. That doesn't mean that the story doesn't move, that the actors don't move, or that if you have set and props that move, great, power to you. I wholly encourage that. But it means that a lot of the time, the audience is going to remember images and not necessarily movement. Movement brings you to those images, certainly. Um, so that is something to think about. The second one that I'm going to bring up are is, uh, is radio drama, audio drama, podcasts, things like this. How do you tell a story without a visual picture? Um, certainly novels do this, but radio dramas do it a bit differently. What what radio dramas do well, and I'm going to hold off on podcasts for a little bit, but when you have a story that is unfolding um, in an audio form, there are a couple of things that happen. There are a couple of strengths to that. One is that um, description, the set, the props oftentimes really fall away. Sure, they the guy's got the gun, or he's in the car, and there's maybe a bit of description, but it's not about that. It's about the character. It's about their their growth. It is about their inner thoughts. Radio dramas, it, the dialogue in radio dramas is very different from dialogue in a film or a television show because a lot of it's internal. With TV or, or uh, film, you can do... Uh, a montage of images and thoughts and, you know, pre, you know what happened to the guy 20 years ago and all that kind of thing. In a radio drama, well, I remember 10 years ago when I was out on that dusty highway. And that's what you get. And that's what the strength of a radio drama is. It is that um, that compulsion to hear people talk uh, as compared to film where it is slices of life and pictures. It's uh radio drama gives you Gives you that internal monologue, and theater has internal monologue oftentimes uh, oftentimes dialogue in theater will somewhat mirror radio drama a little more than film because in theater we want to write character and we want to write that growth and that evolution, and that is the strength of theater is seeing those that the the character developments um, however, the danger here is with, with, uh, with radio drama in particular, the, the danger that a lot of people fall into is that they write plays as radio drama. And I will give you an example. One of the early plays that... The New Playhouse, uh, the company that I'm artistic director for, one of the early plays that we did a developmental reading for had this scene... And in this scene, there was the guy, and the guy's friend, and the girl, and they were hanging out in the guy's apartment. And what happened in that apartment? Well, nothing. Nothing happened in that apartment. There was a stage direction that said that they played trash can basketball. However, nothing in the dialogue referred to that. Uh, there was no indication, and this is a, a fairly lengthy scene, um, certainly fifteen ah, longer than that. It was, it was a, it was a, it was a, it felt pretty lengthy watching it. It felt lengthy watching it because even though in a reading people are sitting there and they are not getting up and moving around for the most part, there was no physical action implied, and you could tell by watching the reading where the actors were sitting there that if this were produced, somebody. The actors or the director, but certainly not the playwright, would have to wholly invent something to make this scene visually interesting. And this is a side effect of radio drama. Not that people these days are, you know, radio drama has kind of fallen off um, with the exception of Prairie Home Companion. um, but, But people still write this way because in theater we want the characterization we want that growth and that evolution and we want to find the soul and the secrets of humanity you know maybe not in such a cliche way but in a in a very real way that is what theater is about and so there is kind of a default setting that says that if we're getting that good conversation there does not have to be anything visual happening that there are playwrights who believe that it's fine if the characters are great and the, uh, and the story is great, then they don't have to do anything. So, the contention here is that there must be a visual representation of theatricality in your play. Having a growth of a character and an interesting story is not enough. It is not enough. You must make it visually interesting because a play is not a radio drama. You do not listen to it in headphones in the car. You experience it as part of a group and you use your eyes as part of that. Yeah? Okay. All right. Part two. What is the difference between that theatricality that we're talking about and spectacle. And this is a fine line. We talked a little bit about it last time with musicals and thing like, things like that. And the question is the visual representation of theatricality is that a helicopter landing on stage? Is that an ocean liner turning up on its side and sinking? Is that theatricality or is that spectacle? Certainly, in the audience, taking in those visual tricks and that gorgeous stagecraft, it's enthralling. And that is the comic book type imagery that you're going to take home with you. That helicopter coming in, Jesus Christ, it's right freaking there. Look at that. How did they make a helicopter? But this goes back to what we were talking about last episode, where if you hook up a sink and you turn it on and water runs, the audience is not thinking, hey, wow, they're actually in a kitchen, the audience stops thinking about the play and they think, how'd they hook that up? I, you know what I bet you they did? I bet you they ran a hose under there and I bet you they hooked that hose. That's probably how they... Oh, wait, wait, what just happened? What did he say? And they stop listening because they're paying attention to the stagecraft. And there are certainly theories on this. And and um, and I don't claim to have the the answers to them, but I can say... That when when you do something really cool on stage that involves stagecraft and and uh, high tech uh, high tech skill, the tendency for the audience is to stop thinking about the story and to think about the helicopter landing. And then they kind of laugh and they have to do the thing and look at the helicopter came down. And then they have to get back into it. You've just lost them. You've just lost the audience, and certainly they're going to walk away saying, "Hey, a helicopter landed on that freaking show." In that play, but I think you've lost something there. How many times has that play, with the helicopter landing or the ocean liner sinking, how many times are they produced the way that they're really meant to be produced? I would guess not as much as Fiddler on the Roof. When we're Fiddler on the Roof, you just kind of dance and sing and tell a sad story. Yeah, very sad. That's done all the freaking time, because there's no freaking helicopter landing in Fiddler on the, lo- on the Roof. Anyway, so... Who knows what spectacle is, but I would guess that it has to do with an ocean liner sinking on stage. Um, so, so we're not going to talk about that right now. We're not going to talk about tricks and, um, and technology being used on stage to, to, to create that kind of a spectacle. What we are going to talk about... Uh, to get to the heart of the visual representation of theatricality is to also go back to something that I said at the tail end of last episode, and that is adaptation. One of the things I left with last episode was the idea that if your play is truly theatrical, it cannot be easily adapted to another storytelling form. And here are some examples of what I'm talking about here. Um, one that you very well may be familiar with is How I Learned to Drive by Paula Vogel. How I Learned to Drive is a story that travels forward and backward in time at the same time. Um, And that is not necessarily the strength of... the. And it's not just the fact that it's moving around in time. It's the way that Paula Vogel meticulously crafted the evolution of this play and the way this play grew and evolved. Tell me, tell me if you are familiar with this play, how can this play realistically become a television episode or a film? Um, You might have better luck with a novel. You might, but I don't know that it would be that easy to get that. I don't. I don't think it would necessarily work as a radio drama. Um, Now, does that mean that you can't make that attempt and that you can't make bad adaptations of something? No, absolutely not. You totally can. Bad adaptations happen all the time. But I would say that if you did take How I Learned to Drive um, and do an audio recording of it, and I've heard one, um, you lose something. You lose something because you don't have that experience. Angels in America, I also gave as an example, and you say, well, wait a minute. Angels in America was turned into a miniseries on HBO. That is absolutely true. Tony Kushner did the adaptation, and I read a thing where he said that it took him like five years. took him like five years to rip the theatricality out of the original play scripts and put in that which is television, that which is film. He had to do he had to chop it apart and rebuild the thing from the ground up. It, it, when you watch, if you do watch that HBO version, it is not the same thing. Yeah, the, the concepts and the storyline, most of the characters, sure, sure, same thing. It's not the same thing. It's not the same experience as the theatrical version. And it took him freaking forever. It wasn't as simple as, yeah, go film it. You can't do that. And they knew if they did that, it would turn into a big bunch of junk. So it took him a long time to do it. Is it possible? Sure. You have to take the theatricality out of it and put the TV version of theatricality into it. Other good example, and I mentioned this guy last time too, Alan Akeborn, my personal playwriting hero, um, the most widely produced living playwright today. This is a guy who absolutely understands what theatricality is. And he started writing in the 60s, and... Now, here's the disclaimer on it. The majority of Alan Akeborn's plays have a very similar story, but his presentation for each of these plays is, is wholly original and unique and of the theater. I'll give you some examples. If you aren't familiar with his work, I'm going to give you two things to go find. The first is The Norman Conquests. Norman Conquests is actually three plays, but they're not a trilogy. Each play is a standalone play and each play exists in a certain room of this house and those three plays occur simultaneously you have the option as the producer of doing one of those plays or you could in fact take all three and perform them simultaneously if you had if you had a big space like if you were uh uh like in the round you had a gigantic uh proscenium or something you could, in fact, stage all three plays simultaneously. So that, that is not something, that idea of presentation is not something that could necessarily be done in film, let's say. Now you could, like we talked about before with time code, you could do a split screen, sure, but that's not the same thing. That's not the same thing at all. I mean, it's hard to, you. how do you get across to the audience that the actors are actually going from one place to another? As this entire story unfolds, and Time Code did something very similar, but but Norman Conquests and Alan Akeborn's other play, uh, Home and Garden, Homing Garden uh, is two plays, one inside, one outside, happening at the same time, same huge cast doing the same thing, brilliant, brilliant. Uh, check that out. The other play of his that I talk about a lot is a play called How the Other Half Loves. I worked backstage on a production of this play in college. And I love this play. I've totally ripped this play off. Um, and it's brilliant. It's brilliant. Uh, okay, so what is it? Uh, the set of this play is the living room of two couples, two different couples' apartment. Each stick of furniture has a line drawn down the middle, cutting the couch, let's say, in half, left side and right side. Left side of all the furniture is in one apartment. The right side is in another. Act one, uh, a third couple goes to dinner at one of the couple's apartments. Act two, they're at dinner in the other couple's apartments. Act three, they're in both at the same time, flipping back and forth. Brilliant, brilliant and theatrical. How can you tell that play In how can you tell that story in film? How can you get that same effect? And you can't. You absolutely cannot. That is that is a very specific example of what theatricality is. I was in a workshop once where they did this exercise. Your homework is to figure out to find out something that is not possible to do on stage. Go figure that out. So so if I'll, I'll tell you this, and if you go and try to think about it, you will find out that there is absolutely nothing that cannot be done on stage. And I think what I the idea that I played around with in that, um, in that workshop was the sky fell down. How can the sky fall on stage? You're like, that's ridiculous. No, 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 wait, I have an idea. I have another idea. We can raise the stage up in theory. We could lower the ceiling down. We could do it with light. We can do it with color. We can do it in a number of ways. So th- you can make this guy fall, you can make the room fill with water, you can make the spaceship crash into the earth, you can bring horses on, and you can do it with shadows or puppets, or you can bring a freaking real horse if you want to. There's nothing you can't do. There is nothing you cannot do. And what makes these seemingly impossible ideas possible is theatricality. What is not theatrical, in my view, is is nothing happening. Is a comic book gone wrong? It is a single static image. It is no growth from one set of ideas to another. It is... it is... What is not theatrical? Ah, uh, mm, uh, okay, so I'm not going to give you examples because, I don't know, should I, should I give you examples? I don't know. Um, plays that are stuck in one room, not highly theatrical, because otherwise, isn't that just a radio drama? Years ago, the first time I picked up the Writer's Market Guide, that huge, I don't know how many pages, thousands, hundreds at least, page book that lists all the places, if you're a writer, that you can send off your thing, whether it's for theater or film or a novel or whatever. And you look through a lot of the theater entries, and what you see is uh, a, a very similar phrase pop up on a number of them. And years ago, when I first saw this, I didn't understand what they meant. And now I understand what they meant. And that phrase is... Don't send us sitcoms. Theater companies, uh, someone at a theater company, probably, I'm guessing, the person that went through all of the submissions that came in, felt the need to write down, don't send us sitcoms. Don't send us television scripts. Don't send us television um, dramas. What you write for the theater must be for the theater. And in the Writer's Market Guide... A vast number, well, not vast, a, a large number of those entries say that. Did all of those people, all those dramaturgs or artistic directors, get together and say, hey, let's all at once say that people should stop sending us TV scripts? No. They all came to this because, um, because a large chunk of the plays that are sent into theater companies are not theatrical They have that which is unique to film, or television, or comic books, or something else, but they are missing that which is essential for theater. Yes. Yes! That is true. Uh, I don't know how many scripts I've read that have been sent into the new Playhouse, but it's somewhere in the three-digit range. Um, Probably in the low three digits, sure. It's not like 800, but it's closer to, you know, one-something, 2 something. And those scripts get divided into three categories, basically. There are the good ones. Maybe they've been produced before. Maybe they're by someone um, who's had some success in the past. That's usually a very small percentage. Uh, really, really like 2 or 3% are just top-notch play scripts that come in. A large chunk of them are good ideas but not there yet uh and these are the ones that we try to pick when we do readings uh try to develop them but the largest largest chunk of those are people that are trying and just don't understand what makes theater theater probably people that don't go see a lot of plays maybe young playwrights that are still undergrads or in high school There are an awful lot of those. There there are a huge amount of those plays out there. And I can tell you this, as artistic director, that if you figure out what makes theater, theater... Now, maybe your particular play may not connect with me on an emotional level. Maybe there's something about it that I don't want to do. But if you know what makes theater, theater, and theater not film and not a radio drama... You're, it's just a matter of time for you. It's just a matter of time for you to get productions and for your career to really be a career. That is the essence of it. That is what it's all about. We are at about 25 and a half minutes into this show. So I'm going to wrap this up. Again, if you have question, comments, queries, anything like that, please email me at jonah at jonahofthesea.com ask me whatever you want. There is a blog uh, where I post show notes and such like that. It is at the website uh, www.jonahofthesea.com I put this, uh, I put the, the last episode out on Wednesday um, I don't know, Wednesday or Thursday release date, something like that um, Absolutely Check out the website. Lots of information there. It'll be fun time for you. Alright, cool Thank you guys very much. I'll talk at you later the zoo video games are gonna run your brain and all these internets are for idiots. but i love you baby dear but you ain't no shakespeare try to make me to be high class and i would take